There is a crime here that goes beyond denunciation. There is a sorrow here that weeping cannot symbolize. There is a failure here that topples all our success. The fertile earth, the straight tree rows, the sturdy trunks, and the ripe fruit. And children dying of pellagra must die because a prophet cannot be taken from an orange. And coroners must fill in the certificate died of malnutrition because the food must rot, must be forced to rot. The people come with nets to fish for potatoes in the river, and the guards hold them back. They come in rattling cars to get the dumped oranges, but the kerosene is sprayed. And they stand still and watch the potatoes float by, listening to the screaming pigs being killed in a ditch and covered with quicklime, watch the mountains of oranges slop down to a putrefying ooze. And in the eyes of the people, there is the failure. And in the eyes of the hungry, there is a growing wrath. In the souls of the people, the grapes of wrath are filling and growing heavy, growing heavy for the vintage. Welcome to Redeeming Reads. I'm Taylor. And I'm Dylan. And we're a podcast that interprets classic novels in the light of the gospel. How's it going, Dylan? What are you drinking? It's going good. I have a coffee here from Bolt Coffee Roasters in Providence. They're just my go-to. This is actually their espresso blend that's made for making espresso and lattes, but uh, I bought it um, just to do as, you know, a regular like pour over coffee, um, which is good because I've in the past I've gotten blends that are supposed to be espresso blends. And I think that they taste great just as pour over coffee, too. What is what makes an espresso blend like a better option? No idea. I figure it's probably somehow roasted for the purpose of being an espresso shot at like, you know, a cafe or something. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I, I think that it, it still does okay in drip coffee too. Okay. What does this claim to be? What does it claim to taste like? You know, it's funny, and I don't mean to drag Bolt Coffee here, um, because actually they threw in a free can of nitro coffee to me, and so they've been very nice to me. But I will say, for this roaster who has all these strange coffee notes, they're surprisingly just blunt on this one mm. too there's two notes fruity and structured interesting w- what is yeah define structured i don't i don't really know what that means is that a mouthfeel thing or a taste thing i don't great question don't. and why like in the past i think we've talked about on this podcast they've had the note of like star fruit <laughs> yep or starburst swedish fish and then now we have just fruity so if anyone from bolt is listening uh, because I did mention to them actually that <laughs> about the podcast. I think that, actually, that no, I think they follow yeah. the podcast now. Do they follow on Instagram? No I, that, way. Do, that probably doesn't mean anyone's listening to the podcast, <laughs> but but wow. they follow the podcast on Instagram. That's awesome. Yeah, oh, great. Okay, well, hey, you know what, Bolt, if you're listening, <laughs> you guys rock. But I don't under like maybe just write in to us. What is fruity and structured? Yeah, help define us define that for yeah. 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 Great coffee. Great coffee. Good save, Dylan. Yeah, I know. <laughs> For our sponsors. Um, <laughs> I know. What are you drinking? Uh, I am drinking a, I cannot pronounce this, uh, probably because I suspect it's an Ethiopian name, um, but it's Koki? 
or it's Q O K E. So I'm no. no I, like, I like the first one better. Koki? Koki? I don't. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm butchering that uh, Ethiopian people. Um, it's in Ethiopia from Little Wolf Coffee Roasters, uh, as always. And this is this is interesting. I want I want to know what you think about this tasting note, which is this is the flavor of the coffee is coffee cherry. <laughs> Is that not just saying that your coffee tastes like coffee? I feel like you can't use it's like using the word in the definition. You How know? many like, people have eaten the coffee fruit to, or the okay the coffee cherry to tell you you know that tastes like the actual outside of like do you even eat that? Is that no. something that is edible? Oh, actually, I, that might it not be true. Is. I think yeah. a long time ago people would chew them to like get caffeine out if i'm not mistaken okay someone might have to fact check that for me but nobody does now and absolutely nobody who lives a regular life has ever been has ever held a coffee cherry that's not roasted you're right um like that is just that is not a thing so i thought that was fascinating i don't if the the question is it, does this coffee taste like coffee? Absolutely, it does. So if if that's what it's saying, then spot on. Uh, black tea and creamy is the okay. last one. Okay, so, I like. Yeah, that sounds good. Again, the last. I think the last one is always supposed to be like a mouthfeel thing, and I, mm. you know, I see some of that. Um, it's it's fruity. So if a coffee cherry is fruity, then it's a win. Um, black tea, sure. Yeah, it's a good one. It's a it's a solid solid coffee. But does it taste creamy? Uh, you know, be honest. Okay, the- I I was on vacation last week and I did not bring coffee with me, which was probably a mistake. But I I knew I was I was doing that when I went, and I was staying at an Airbnb that was very isolated, and there was only a container of instant coffee in this Airbnb. No, and I was like. There's nothing else. There's no tea. There's no hot chocolate. There's no other hot drink. And I was like, I'm going to try it. Oh, no. And let me tell you, in comparison, this is creamy <laughs> compared <Okay>. to the <laughs> gasoline or whatever that was that I I tried to drink, yeah. um, particularly without sugar or any milk. Uh, that was also not available. So this, yes. It is creamy in comparison to that. It is it is wonderful. It Great. is a beautiful coffee in good, comparison good. to that. Yeah. Don't drink instant coffee. That's the, the moral of this story. So this month we read The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. I think this is a change for us from our normal pattern in that we're reading a great American author. There are sort of few authors, I think, that would fall into this category of kind of great uh, classics, which is something that we still have to define for this podcast at some point, I think. But uh, we put Steinbeck in that category. Uh, he's just kind of a brilliant uh, writer that writes about the issues and some of the history of of America uh, during his lifetime specifically. So he lived and up until 1968, he was born in 1902. Uh, he won Nobel Prizes for some of his writing. Uh, and he wrote about the social issues of his time. Uh, so just like the major things that were happening in his life um, 
lifetime industrial revolution stuff, Great Depression, uh, all sorts of, of things in between. Yeah, it's interesting how um, I was reading a brief article. It's from the front of the copy of my book from the editor. Um, and this person was comparing the contrast of how often before this book and well I guess what I mean to say uh, let me just start again he was comparing how instead of a book that has these heroic characters who are like for example the Greek gods or some type of Christ figure or, or he just big heroic characters he chooses to focus instead on those who are the lowest of the low in society and there's something special about the way that he brings these characters who you typically would not enjoy reading a story about and he makes a really captivating narrative starring these people that are supposed to kind of shock you yeah he he focuses in on really realistic family situations, which is what The Grapes of Wrath is about, ultimately. Um, but he does that in all his books, which is really wonderful. Usually set in California, but um, East of Eden features California really prominently also uh, because he is from Salinas, California. Uh, so he writes about the landscape there a lot. There's a lot of descriptive imagery of, of what's going on uh, in the region. And this Jode family that we're going to talk about uh, this week is is kind of the main focus of this book. Now, this book was banned at one point. Do you know why that is? Yeah, I think it was sort of sensational publicly. Uh, I read that there was sort of two sides to it. I, I think someone cleverly said that people wanting were advocating for it to be banned. And at the same time, tons of people were reading it. Um, so it had hundreds of thousands of sales after it came out. It was really popular um, because I think it painted such a good picture of the plight of people who were suffering um, during the Great Depression in general, but specifically in the Dust Bowl uh, in Oklahoma during during this time. Well, so why don't you go ahead and summarize the book? Yeah, sure. So the whole book, the main character in the book, his name is Tom. Uh, when we begin the story, he has just been released uh, from prison for homicide. We learn that pretty early on. Uh, he commits um, homicide uh, against someone in his town. Um, he, In the story, he's going home to find his family after being in prison. So he was in prison several towns over from where he lived. He was traveling to go back to... Uh, to his hometown in Oklahoma to find his family and friends. Um, and he meets Casey, this uh, ex-preacher that he remembers from earlier in his childhood. And they kind of start traveling together. They're both sort of wandering and homeless at this point. They find Tom's home abandoned. Uh, and they find that this is something that's happening all over Oklahoma in this region uh, large banks are taking over the farming 
in the area and what used to be small tenant farming. So the land was owned by the banks, but the, the small families would run the farms on that land are now turning over to an industrialized version of farming uh, using technology, using tractors for the first time, and they are able to farm large areas of the land. Um, and all of these things, the police, these authority figures, banks, the higher ups, the large corporations are seen as sort of the enemy of the common man. Uh, and this theme is carried all the way through the book. Uh, the Dust Bowl at this point has destroyed the land. Uh, there is over farming uh, certain crops that sucked a lot of water out of the soil. Uh, and that in conjunction with drought, I believe, caused this um, ecological disaster where uh, the ground, the topsoil just becomes dust, which cannot be farmed and it blows everywhere. It just it ruins um, any opportunity for for farming or living on the land. So when Tom and Casey finally run into Tom's family, uh, they find the family packing a truck to leave Oklahoma to go to California to look for work because they can no longer farm their land. Um, <clears throat> the whole vision for this was uh, the whole reason why they wanted to go to California was for was because they found these pamphlets that had been distributed by farms in California uh, that viewed or that showed California as this idyllic place where there was plenty of work and they were paying good wages for work. Um, and all they would have to do is, is pick fruit. So it's go pick oranges or whatever it is and, or peaches, and they would make plenty of money as a family. They could buy a little home. That's the vision that they have as they're setting out on their journey and there's some conflict for Tom because he is violating his parole by leaving Oklahoma. Um, and there's all sorts of family tension and difficulty, but the family consists of um, the grandparents, uh, the parents, and then the, the children. So Tom is, is one of the children, and there's a few other family members there. So in the beginning, you mentioned that Tom is the main character, <laughs> but I think that the main character kind of shifts to... I, I think actually the main character becomes Ma, who is yeah. Tom's mother. Tom yeah. isn't even in the last few chapters of this book, but there's an it's an interesting. That's a different discussion we had, but I think it's interesting how he provides this whole cast of characters that for, at first it felt like it was way too many people to keep track of, and then, but he does such a great job of developing characters slowly over time, and you get to know the inner workings of each person, and. Um, it's just interesting how at different points, different main characters in this family rise up, I think. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think that's a pretty good argument. I think Ma might be the star of the whole book, actually. Yeah. By the end, there's a shift even within the family for authority shifts to her from the pa, from the father figure to the mother, um, which says a lot. And there's there might be more depth to that than I even know. But hmm. uh at least at the beginning, Tom is kind of our main our main figure that the story is following. But you're you're absolutely right. It kind of bounces around, particularly when the whole family's traveling together. Um, you're seeing like six different people's <laughs> experience all at once. Um, yep. Yeah. All right. So now that the family is is traveling, they have very little money. They have this truck that they're traveling in, uh, which is unreliable. Uh, 
uh, because we're talking about life in, in the 1920s and 30s. So this is not a reliable vehicle and they have to travel thousands of miles in this truck with the whole family. Um, and that is an obvious difficulty, particularly when you have very little money to begin with. So the question of their vehicle making it and they whether they can buy food and all of that is a huge question mark for the whole family. And uh, the whole the journey is long, 100% worth reading, but uh, over time the family falls apart essentially. Uh, the first thing that happens is the, the grandfather dies uh, on the journey. He's just too old. He can't keep up with the travel. Um, the grandma eventually dies also. Uh, uh, Tom's brother Noah leaves, just abandons the family. Um, Tom's sister, Rose of Sharon, is on this journey with her husband, and she is pregnant, but her husband Connie abandons her. So the whole family kind of falls apart. Um, and this is partly due to the fact that this idealized vision of California as the perfect place is essentially a lie. Uh, it's something that they've made up in their minds, but it's not true. Um, and they learn this over time as they stay in all these small camps of homeless travelers or people looking for money. Um, or Vils, actually. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was funny for me, just to interject here, it was funny for me when like you see them traveling into these camps and then all of a sudden like one of the people who's at the camps refers to it as a Hooverville yeah. and then like everything from like, I don't know, eighth grade US history <laughs> just like flooded back into my mind. But I think that it's funny because I don't think you're supposed to, I think it's kind of supposed to be like a, a plot twist almost or like you're you're so sucked into this book and then you realize that these people are becoming victims of like the whole political tensions of the time and they're living in a Hooverville, but yeah. you didn't know, you wouldn't have known it was a Hooverville just like the family didn't until you hear it from another character. And then you re realize like, Oh, I see what's happening. And it teaches you, it teaches you a little bit of what actually happened too. It puts you in the shoes of the people who were victims of this. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, and that's kind of the beauty of that focused in view of the family is that you kind of discover it with them and it helps you not, you're not starting off with this assumption that they are like homeless travelers and jumping in with that idea. You're starting with this idea that they are this family unit who's owned this land for a long time and farmed it their entire lives. And now they're doing everything they possibly can just to survive. But the reality is that they it's it's nearly impossible. They find one government camp, which I think is an interesting addition to that commentary about Hoovervilles, because that government camp was a New Deal thing, um, it kind of top down from the government that was actually helpful for them. Uh, this government program uh, during the Depression to help families just like the Jodes who are are traveling. Uh, and it, it does work out for them. Unfortunately, there's still no work there. So it was kind of a catch-22 where uh, it was a safe place to stay. They liked living there. Uh, and at the same time, they still don't have work to make a living. So they still have to travel on from there. Um, they find out that California is oversaturated with workers who who cannot find work, partly because hundreds of thousands of, of people from Oklahoma who have the derogatory term Okies assigned to them are traveling from Oklahoma also. So now the kind of the job market is flooded uh, for California and 
nobody can find work. And because there's an overabundance of workers, these giant farms can drive down the wages to where they're paying people essentially nothing to work. Uh, They can't make a living off of what they're making because there's plenty of workers. So if someone says that's an unlivable wage for me and they refuse the job, there's someone else who's going to take it. So essentially nobody can, can make any money. They can charge literal cents um, per hour or for a job. And they would take it just because there's nothing else uh, to, to do. Um, at this point, the family travels, uh, to a farm that had peach picking, which they were doing exactly what I just described. Uh, they were paying extremely little money, uh, to pick peaches. And it's kind of all a scheme to essentially get what is free, sort of free labor. Um, and it's during this time that due to circumstance, um, Casey is eventually killed, for organizing a strike against these farms. Uh, and Tom kills the man who kills Casey in return. Uh, so again, uh, he has committed murder and he has to go into hiding because obviously now they're hunting for him and considering his past, that would turn out really badly for him. And uh, eventually he just has to leave the family altogether, as Dylan mentioned earlier. Uh, he he cannot stay with the family. He can't show his face, so he... Um, has to leave and he exits for the last few chapters of the book. Um, The family goes on to find work picking cotton uh, and that works out for a little while. um, And right towards the end of the book, Rose of Sharon uh, is pregnant, as we mentioned, and she is, she has her baby, but the baby is stillborn because uh, she is malnourished and as the whole family is, and probably because of stress and other things also. Um, and we leave the family on this, uh, sad note where they no longer have a vehicle, which is the one thing that got them out there in the first place. And they are going on as a family. They're on foot to find more work or a place to live or just continuing to survive any, any way they can. Uh, and that is where the book sort of ends. Is there anything you'd like to add, Dylan? Did you leave out the last detail intentionally? I don't I don't know that that was intentional or not, but it is a important moment where uh, the family goes into an abandoned barn and uh, there's a man there who is dying, basically. Right. Um, he is malnourished and there's a child with him. And Rose of Sharon, uh, despite her not having a baby because it was stillborn, um, she essentially offers to or she does. She doesn't have to offer to breastfeed him to give him uh, nourishment at that moment. Um, and it I, that's sort of a high note, I guess, to end on in a weird way. Um, but it's still a dismal situation for the family as a whole. Yeah, I think it shows the community that's been created. Yeah. It's just the union of the people who have all been oppressed. Yeah. I think that's a great segue into our themes section. Like, what are the main themes in this book? Could you talk more about that, Dylan? When I first read the book, I would have said, you know, injustice for the oppressed um, versus these larger banks and corporations forcing the wages down and all the, all these things. But when I reflect on the book more afterwards, I realize, though, that the banks, I, I'm not justifying it, but it just shows everyone, including the banks themselves, were in fear of how they would operate because of the Great Depression. 
and the market crash. And so the banks weren't simply doing this to be cruel. Yeah. They were trying to survive themselves. And you see this idea of, hey, man, I'm just trying to, I'm just looking out for me and myself. You know, I'm just trying to survive. You see that when it comes to the banks, it pretty much initiating the whole thing. You see that when it comes all the way down to um, one of the men who lives in Oklahoma, who is one of the first traders who gets hired on to sit on one of the big tractors and do the, you know, just um, literally plow through people's homes just to keep a job. And he ends up betraying all of his other, you know, his hometown pretty much. There's a, there's a pretty specific scene that I'm thinking of in the book where this happens. But you see top down, it's this, um, it's not like unlike, I, I think unlike the absurdity that Taylor and I have talked about in previous books like, like Heart of Darkness and in the castle, it's more, of, it, it's like a, more of a calculated absurdity that I find, that I think really is just a result of like everyone have everyone looking out for themselves, you know? And I don't think anyone really wanted it to end up this way. It wasn't intended to be cruel, but it was like, you know what? In that kind of fight or flight era of the, with, with the Great Depression and the market crash, people had to do it, they had to do it for themselves. But I think that's the whole point of this book is that then these people who become victims of that eventually become like closer than family as they all traverse the country together and even to that end scene you see the old man being breastfed by someone who he doesn't even know a, a young woman and um in that moment too it the way that it's described they the the mom does it without even thinking like i think that ma who is the mother of rose of sharon says something like like you know what to do or something to that extent where, like, she didn't even have to be asked. There was some kind of uniting bond between all these people who had been pushed out of their homes, and they all were, like, one collective whole. So I feel like it's the opposite of that. Like, it starts off, and the book is initiated because of the selfishness of people, and it ends with what grows out of that selfishness and that movement is people who have learned to band together for the greater good. Yeah. I feel like it's a both and thing. Like, I think Steinbeck still might have intended to address some of the larger corporate yeah. greed and stuff. You're right. I, I don't mean to say that they're innocent, and I don't think John Steinbeck thought that, but I guess I, myself, reading it, it's like, well, I, no, I'm not justifying yeah. what happened, but it wasn't just pure cruelty against like it wasn't just blatant oppression yeah like in some of the books that we've read already right and i think that example of the the guy who rides the tractor and is getting paid by the big corporations is a great example um there's a great scene in the book where he's um you know the machine he's riding they kind of associate the man with the machine and then there's a moment where he takes off his his like glasses and helmet because it's so dusty um and he is just a, another member of the town, basically, who's been hired. And he's making $3 a day, which is a fortune, basically, to to ride this tractor. And I think you're right that it's trying to humanize him in that moment. And that's kind of a symbol for everything that's happening. It's like, you can blame the car salesman who's trying to sell, you know, junk cars to people, but they're also just trying to survive. Um, and I think you're right, though, that the book is really about the moments of humanity in the midst of that 
more than it is about just injustice for for the poor in general. Um, I think the book is trying to, it emphasizes those human moments a lot more, the conversations between family. It's a dialogue driven book for sure. Um, And Mm -hmm. that it's about maybe more about like family and about those people who are in adversity um, banding together uh, because they have to, to survive and to, to help each other out. Yeah. And it would have been shocking for the readers because at this time, I think this book plopped in people's laps when at a time when people already looked down at these Okies in real life. I'm trying to think of who in our day these Okies might <laughs> like be who we could compare it to, but someone who's seen as like the scum of the earth, like these, you know, the way that the book is written, you're invited into this family and you see this charming family with all their quirks and like humor and everything. And you follow along with them. And eventually by the end of it, you don't know when it happened or where, but all of a sudden they're, they're, you're now following a group of hobos who are homeless. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like when did that switch happen? It's hard to say, but you realize that like, like, yeah, Steinbeck is trying to bring the reader into the minds of these people who in real life are just really being oppressed, who are typically looked down upon to try to break down those barriers and see, you know, everyone's humanity at the end of the day, uh, regardless of like where they live in like a Hooverville or a camp, um, you know, in California, they were being um, persecuted, <laughs> really, this, this group of people, but they didn't, they were no different. You know, they were really no different than the people um, who were living there. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. He adds human dignity to people that from the outside are often stripped of their dignity by society in general, which I think certainly applies to the poor there. I think also a few other things that pop up in the book are perseverance and difficulty, maybe. Like this family, it is sort of an epic journey that is sad and that it keeps getting worse and worse for the family as time goes on, I think. I think that would be an accurate statement. Yeah, um, yep. But they still focus on on the important things, on staying together, on on feeding each other. And, and people do have to split off for different reasons. But there's definitely a theme about perseverance. Um, even when the future is completely bleak, they're going to do whatever it takes to survive. I think it's really a testament to, to human ability to persevere in those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and then finally, one thing I thought of is, is transcendence um, and the religious overtones of the book, which are obvious on Steinbeck's part. And also this figure of Casey in the book, who is an ex-preacher and has all sorts of sort of religious and anti-religious and transcendent ideas throughout the the whole book. Which I think like for people within, for those who might listen to within the larger evangelical culture or like church culture, um, although I hate to use that, phrase um i i see it kind of akin to like the those who have deconstructed right or those who are going undergoing deconstruction leading to possible deconversion you know that that, i feel like that just randomly struck a chord for our for christians who are living um here in our day and age now with people who are um, becoming you know de-churched yeah or, or having are beginning to reflect differently on the beliefs they were brought up with and it's kind of the same crisis of faith that we see casey has yeah absolutely i think you're right he he is a deconstructed preacher basically 
Um, he begins to question why are like what makes something good and what makes something bad. There's a quote I think about like that's pretty popular from the book that he says about how nothing's really holy after all. Yeah. You know, it's just like some people do this thing that is nice and some do this thing that's not so nice. Yeah, there's this but really there's vivid... nothing unholy to it. Yeah, and it, he, ex- I think that was a personal struggle for him. Um, there's this moment early on when you meet him when he says, um, he's talking to Tom, and he says, a girl is just a girl to you. They wasn't nothing to you, but to me they was holy vessels. I was saving their souls. And here, with that responsibility on me, I'd just get them frothing with the Holy Spirit, and then I'd take them out in the grass. Um meaning he would sleep with them after these <laughs> revival meetings. Uh, and that was a... So again, even like today's, like the sexual abuse in the yeah, church, no, right? Like it's just an interesting, you know? For sure. But yeah, the, the interesting totally. part for him was that it was this... He felt the hypocrisy of himself uh, in that. That um, yeah. he was searching himself for, why did I do that? Why did I take this thing that was holy and then violate it? Um, and he had this in struggle, this internal struggle as a preacher and a sinner. And the whole book is an interesting contrast because a, a portion of it is about his friendship with Tom, who's this ex-murderer on parole, basically, mm-hmm. and then the preacher. And uh, really, I think maybe part of the book, again, is to to point out the similarities between them more than the differences. Uh, yeah. That they're both just two two men trying to live out in the world. Um, and, uh, they have complicated histories, both of them, but they're not so different from one another, despite the fact that Casey's often elevated because people are like, oh, you're the preacher. So you're, you have this status and he's always saying, no, I'm just like everyone else. Um, I've, you know, struggled with these things. I've dealt with, you know, sin and, and internal conflict. Yeah. It's an interesting overtone of like the culture in this area of the world at this time too. Where there was, it's almost like a kind of pseudo, like charismatic Pentecostalism, like the early roots. Like even in that quote that you mentioned, there was a general idea that people would, like he says, I just get them frothing with the Holy Spirit. Like people would be like going crazy dancing, yeah. you know, rolling on the floor, getting slain in the spirit, those types of things. And that was like the norm for Christianity as they knew it in their time and in their culture. Yeah. Um, which is interesting, right? Um, cause we still have that in areas today of the church. And, um, but it also shows, I mean, it shows the importance of doctrine and apologetics and understanding, um, like why we believe what we believe in order to prevent like, you know, the falling out or the crisis of faith. We need to have, knowledge of the good reason for why we believe what we do. Right. Yeah. What do you think Steinbeck was trying to convey or do through this character of, of Casey in the book? I can't tell if he was trying to make the common person less religious or more religious. I can't tell because (laughs) the thing, and what you notice with Casey is his, the ghost of a preacher follows him everywhere he goes and he ends up being and standing up for the noble causes that he should, you know, and is that I can't, I just can't tell though. I can't peg it down. If John Steinbeck is trying to promote a humanist viewpoint, a secular humanist viewpoint, or through the kind of backwards hypocrisy, reverse um, psychology, if maybe he's trying to promote, because I, the religion, the religious aspect, I'm not sure. 
um, because I think he at one point was a religious person himself. Is St- that right? Steinbeck. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, he was. Um, I think that. I think he's a kind of a product of of his time, also in that, and we see a lot of one thing that comes up is um, themes of transcendentalism, uh, which is sort of associated with uh, the Unitarian Church or the Universalist mm. Unitarian Church in the mm. United States today, um, you know, which is kind of very syncretistic um, and started with, you know, people like uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry mm. David Thoreau. So there was this focus on the environment, on creation uh, is a huge part of it. And there's a few times when Casey appeals to that also when he's yeah. like out in nature and he's like looking at the stars and all of that that plays a role in his understanding of the universe mm-hmm. um and it was very kind of um focused on individual um i don't know not not just um individual freedom but spiritualism and uh he is sort of transcendental in that that um way i think ultimately but complicated character yeah i'm not sure exactly what steinbeck was doing i seems to me he was trying to lean more that way to sort of Mm -hmm. i don't know to say deconstruct his readers but to show his readers that maybe there's more than kind of this narrow view that they were seeing and according to him at least and to point them towards this sort of other perspective on spiritualism Taylor, what do you think about John Steinbeck's writing style? Do you think there's anything distinct about his writing that makes him him? Yeah, I think it's interesting. We we talked a little bit about, we mentioned the castle from our last uh, episode um, recently. And I think there's a sense in that they're both about sort of this absurd journey in life that is fraught with difficulty um, in terms of the family is every every corner they turn around is a new challenge. Um, they're constantly looking for work, constantly trying to find food and money and all the things that they need to just survive. And they barely make it every time. And I think that's kind of a level of absurdity. But instead of the way that um, Kafka did it in the castle, uh, Steinbeck takes this really realistic literal way of doing it in the in terms of this family um and then he also has this thing where he sort of alternates chapters in terms of zooming in really close to this family and then zooming out to the big picture uh and he'll describe something sort of in in grand terms um so he'll describe just society in general and then he'll focus back in on the family uh, but there's some sort of alternating chapters there. And that's a really distinctive thing about him. I don't know if he does that in his other works or not. I don't think I've read enough to to know, but that's a distinctive feature of, of this book, at least. Yeah, again, for me, referencing the beginning material of my copy of the book that I was reading, because I like to know about the author and what's, you know, like in their mind always. So I'll kind of skim through that. Um, I read that he was experimenting with this style in this book and he referred to these short little chapters as pace changers um which are almost like sweeping epic grand poetry um of like a cosmic proportion um but also of like like showcasing 
the nature of the landscape and even like the country overall what's happening and um i at one point when i was talking with taylor i compared it almost like it's almost like a national geographic like documentary just what you're reading and it's but it's amazing and um some of these they're just so poetic um and i think one of the points he was trying to he said when he was interviewed about why he did that is so that it would open up people's hearts to prepare them for what was going to happen in the next chapter which would get into the minutia and the details of like the next character who's going to die or the next character who's going to like leave the family and um to kind of prepare like your palette for what's to come and to break down those barriers that people might have um and so honestly my favorite parts of reading this book were all of those short little chapters in between because they were just written so uniquely there's even there's um, a couple of them include dialogues and just like it's this kind of stream of consciousness form of writing where the like descriptions of the environment and the nature are also intermingled with phrases of people that are like in like dialogues that are happening but also like not happening and it's like a watered down version of like there's this one um where it's like this this car this junk car shop um and it's like a mix between a dialogue between the stingy manager and the salesman who's trying to sell these cars um while also describing like the desert and everything but as you read it it just like pulls you along and i think it's it's those parts of the book that were just really intriguing and like really just unique to read for me Oh, and then I would mention, there, oh, there's a couple, just because they're, yeah. <laughs> I like also the one, actually, I think the quote that we read is from that chapter in the beginning that we read about the, all the rotten fruit yeah. that was being destroyed. Yeah, that they would rather destroy good food and fruit um, while people are dying of malnutrition. And at the same time, they're throwing fruit away and even purposefully, um, diluting it or or destroying you know good things uh and and letting children starve at the same time um and that injustice built up this wrath uh which gave the name uh the book its name they were building up this wrath inside them as they watched um society kind of degrade them while also destroying all of this good food while they starved off to the side yeah um there's a whole chapter about a turtle that is particularly <laughs> enjoyable to read. So I'm just going to leave that there. I don't feel like I want to explain it, but read the book yourself and just <laughs> yes. enjoy reading about the journey of a of a small turtle in Oklahoma yes. during the Dust Bowl. <laughs> uh, so I think a good thing to do for the gospel conversation would be to talk about the Christian vision for justice, because I think this is something that, I don't know, is complicated in our Christian world at the moment, because we have this, we have kind of social justice on one side, which often means something different than what the church means by justice. But maybe there's also a pendulum swing happening in the church where like, sometimes we want to run away from the idea of social justice that our culture is putting out, but then we neglect what 
<laughs> what is the actual biblical vision of justice that God gives us uh, in scripture in the first place. Um, so I don't know. What what are your thoughts on on what our vision for justice should be as as believers? Well, unlike Casey in the book, we have to know that things are right and things are wrong. There is such a thing as good and bad. Um, we have to. We need a standard to be consistent and logical with why we believe what we do, and that should affect the actions that we take. Who? What are the rules that we must abide by, and what is you know what is a violation of those rules? Um, and I think that we can. I think that Christians have a firm foundation in standing on God's word. Recently, I've been just meditating in uh, Psalm one nineteen, which discusses God's word itself, and he, it's described as his righteous rules, his judgments, his testimonies, his precepts that are upright and that actually make his followers upright too. And so I think that's, that is immediately what comes to my mind when I think of like what should shape my view of what is right and wrong in the world um, should be a conscience that is conformed to God's standards of, of morality and what is good and what is wrong um, or else my conscience, I can sear my conscience all day long and change that. And um, I think that, you know, we're apt to, because we're not consistent, we change, but God never changes. We need a firm, immovable, unchanging source of truth to even begin discussing what justice truly is. I was, I've been thinking a lot about um, in Leviticus, uh, towards the end of Leviticus, um, this thing happens where God's holiness in his presence among his people in the tabernacle radiates out from his presence to the priests first, and then to the people of Israel, and then even further to the nations and the people who are furthest from that kind of central place. And mm. the rules that God gives his people there are fascinating social rules. Um, the one that comes to mind that just hits me every time is this command that you do not reap your fields all the way to their edges. And what that meant was as you harvested your field by hand, you would leave, you know, I don't know, 10 feet, whatever it is on the edges of your field. And essentially the idea there was that that doesn't belong to you. That belongs to God, and God can give that to whomever he chooses. Um, and particularly the poor and the orphaned were in mind there. So God is saying, out of everything that you own, I'm going to set aside this portion. Um, and that's going to be for people who have less than you. Um, and that's a powerful image for for mm. justice, I think, in that like you might already feel that you have a scarcity, but you're still commanded to give up this portion uh, for someone else. Um, that is the opposite of efficient. That's the opposite of economical. That's the opposite of, of, um, greedy in every possible way. Uh, it doesn't make economic sense to do that. You're not going to make more money. Um, and there's an image there, I think, uh, for just this idea of serving the poor. And even in the Bible, um, you know, we were talking about the the switch between the focused in view in some chapters and then the the kind of epic poetry in others. And 
I feel like the Bible might have done that first. Um, <laughs> we have a few books in the Old Testament. Uh, we have the book of Judges, which is this like terrible description of everything that's going wrong in Israel at the time. And during that time, we have this zoomed in vision um, where we have the story of Ruth and it focuses in on just one guy who is carrying out God's vision for justice by leaving parts of his field for someone else to come and reap. And that family line eventually leads to David and Jesus himself. Um, so the Messiah is, is that coming Messiah is fulfilled in this tiny story about this family who's faithful to God um, and his vision of justice. And I think that's a really powerful image that I was constantly thinking about as I was reading um, the grapes of wrath. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, God's own commands and rules paved the path that his Messiah would would walk into through, like you said, Ruth. And that almost one could say like the welfare system that God created for yes. <laughs> the poor of his people of from whom would come the one who would um, make many rich. Absolutely. And I, uh, a personal thing I've been thinking a lot about too is like, are we as churches, what are we doing to fulfill God's vision for justice in our communities? Um, and obviously, like I mentioned earlier, there's some tension, I think, in churches at the moment, but we can't neglect that um, while we're also preaching the gospel constantly, right? This this good news is primary and we're going to speak it. We're going to speak it to everybody. Uh, we're not going to back down on that and that there are specific things that God means by justice. And at the same time, um, that we are serving just the, the poor and the orphans in our communities and in our churches. And I think, unfortunately, um, you know, we might be just as guilty as, <laughs> as you know, people who are, who are not doing any of that. Um, but we have a special call to serve those people. I had mentioned before that in reading this book, I was trying to peg down a people group maybe that we might consider to be in a similar situation as the Okies in the Grapes of Wrath. Mainly when I'm when I was trying to describe what this book really was to other people, <laughs> because it's such a personal journey for the reader to, yeah, to have that to just have that realization that you're being drawn into this group of characters who's going to end up being a bunch of homeless people um, who you typically wouldn't maybe not relate to or have the same compassion or empathy towards, um, which is not a good thing. Um, but so that's what this book I think would help you kind of break through. But um, still, I don't know. <laughs> uh, the closest I would I would think probably are the homeless, and I say that living in an area where, if I were to drive around, I was just even speaking about this with my wife the other day, that on Sunday we drove by four homeless people in our in our um, in our drive home from church and then we also went into a part of the city and then back to our home but we passed on just any given day approximately four homeless people um right there i think is 
it's just one of those areas that if if we're honest it's so tempting and so easy and so many people do including me and you and everyone who was listening to this podcast you have at one point driven past a homeless person and not stopped and not given them your time and it just makes me think about people like that who it's easy to be tempted to not have sympathy for or come up with a straw man of why this person is you know without understanding their full story and um you know, there's a lot of complexities and I don't mean to solve the issue, but I think the at least the best thing for all of us and um, for us is to open our hearts a little bit and try to at least step into the shoes of, of people like that and um, have compassion for other human beings. That's at least one step forward. There are a lot of complexities um, and a lot of different points that might be considered in how to properly, you know, help people and there's different opinions about that but i think at least being open to compassion is a good place to start i think we have to and in that sense the gospels are really kind of condemning for us on that count i think just the Mm -hmm. way that jesus commanded um, his disciples either through parables or through what he actually did was to serve just those people yeah i think of the Good Samaritan, right? Pretty much identical, right? And you know these, this these stories that sort of indicated that the kingdom is for them, you know, and and that um, he he came to save the lost, and often it's the people who have nothing else to lose who are who are most receptive to the gospel that they needed saving, and I'd suggest have nothing to offer. Yeah, is who God radiates towards children. Yeah. The people who are lame beggars. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that is a, I think in terms of our, our whole plan with this podcast, right, which is to help, to read these books to help enhance our understanding of of the Christian gospel and our own faith. I think that's the biggest thing for me that I'm going to walk away thinking about um, is, as we talked about the humanizing of these individuals and then what does that mean as I enact that in my life? Um, what does that mean for me as I try to fulfill God's vision for justice in our world today? And ultimately we know that that's not going to come until, um, till Jesus's return again. And we now live in this, strange already but not yet world where the kingdom has come and and Jesus has started that process but we look forward to when he's going to set everything straight completely Um, and all these beautiful images in scripture that we have that you know the garden of Eden will be like a new new world here on earth um, where God reigns perfectly uh, and everything is set right um and that is a, a beautiful image of perfect justice. And that's what we're waiting for. And this story is sort of a human, um, a very human story and that it's, it's real and it's sad. Um, but we have greater hope. There's an illusion in the very title of the book that is a direct illusion. And it's actually taken from the Battle Hymn of the Republic um, the line in that 
that is also tied in with the the scriptural idea of the wine press of God's wrath um, that is possibly seen in the beginning chapters of Isaiah when Israel is described as a vineyard and um, there's a wine press that he built and that he placed in there in um, in his city on his holy hill. Um, and then, I mean, there's a whole unique like theme of the a theology of like grapes and wrath and wine and blood and, and images throughout all of scripture that you could take in different ways maybe. And so I think discernment is required in properly interpreting these, but in the book of revelation as well, we see that um, God does tread out the wine press of his wrath. And um, regardless, the, it, the book was, it's an intentional reference at least, or the most clearly just to this, to this battle hymn of the Republic, which was a um, civil war patriotic song. <laughs> and so, of course, I had to look it up because uh, I always like to look up the background of stuff from the books that we read. Um, and it was interesting because I had forgotten about this song. I think I would like listen to it like in school, like elementary school, learning about the, or maybe not elementary, middle school. I don't know. Whenever we learned about the civil war, and it was like a camp song that was sung by the North when they were fighting um, in the Civil War of the United States. And so it's a weird kind of mix between like the patriot, like patriotic USA, American flag, and like Christianity that somehow existed just in the culture back then. So it's, it's not, I don't think, a legitimate hymn. Um, or Christian song. Well, I'll throw in my own experience with this song, oh, Dylan. That go, yes, I'm go ahead. pretty sure growing up, this was in the hymnal in my church, and it might have been Ooh, sung sometimes. Right. I I was ignorant okay. of the background, and I, yeah. I we probably okay. didn't sing all the verses like you never do with with hymns, right? But I definitely know the hymn. I mean, I could also be wrong. You know, maybe it actually is in Christian traditions too. But but. but but am I am I wrong in saying that am I am I wrong in like interpreting it through like a patriot like oh. a nationalistic like not Trump's America but like <laughs> still like <laughs> very Republican Christian Abraham Lincoln's America <laughs> yeah very yes yes precisely no, I think you're 100 percent right and it sort of makes me uncomfortable now like I would never yeah. suggest singing this yep. for that reason. <laughs> Because yeah. it makes me sort of uncomfortable. And also, like, just the phraseology of the title, like, I don't know. I'm not super comfortable with <laughs> with the battle hymn of the role. Like, seems, mm. seems, I don't know, just it's a, yeah. not appropriate considering the context maybe it came out of. So I, yeah. I will grant, that's just, a, that's just a fun fact from me. <laughs> I appreciate today. that. that yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, no, it's, it's extremely fascinating. Huh. But I will say, though, and I just want to read this line, at the same time, regardless of any of that, any preconceptions about this, like, hymn, or, or the song, this verse about the grapes of wrath is actually just beautiful and glorious and biblical. And, and I was so I was, like, surprised, stripping all that away to be like, whoa, this is insane. Um, so let me just read it. Um, remove all your preconceptions. <laughs> Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosened the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. 
and then glory, glory, hallelujah. <laughs> and so, yeah, then the images of the American flag and the eagle swoop in. But, um, <laughs> but isn't that just like, man, we need that image though of, of the, the biblical image of God coming in his wrath to punish the wicked. And I think often like that is a, an, a like appalling or like that's that's what people don't like to hear about God or think is in, uh, incorrect about God or why Christianity is wrong because God would be so like, you know, angry over sin and this stuff. But at the same time, like, don't we all want bad people to be punished? Like, don't we all... <laughs> You know, is, isn't there a sense in which justice needs to be served in yeah. some regard? Yeah. And I think it points to that that struggle, that tension, and even like people who might say such things about, "Oh, I'm not a Christian because of this." Like, well, if that's the case, then you're hypocritical in the fact that you still desire justice in some regard in this world. You desire that the oppressed be lifted up, and you desire that the oppressor be punished in some regard yeah and and so it's just yeah that that's that's who our god is it regard you know it's not who abraham lincoln is it's not who the american you know whatever war battle song is but ultimately though our god who um who who is the the god of israel initially not america um yeah he there there's a genuine aspect of his nature that he promises to set things right and that requires the just repayment of those who are and have done evil things, which is a glorious thing. It's a good thing. Yeah. As uncomfortable as it may come off. Um, I think if people who are uncomfortable with the wrath of God, um, look in your own heart, like see like the areas that you, you know, you have a longing for justice and for things to be made right yeah and god will do that and he accomplish and he promises to accomplish that and he offers out and extends mercy to those who do repent and he and and the ultimate picture of justice is those who um repent of their evil and their sins and turn to him ultimately that's the picture of, of real justice that it's from there that we can and men have to address injustices in our culture. Yeah, we're ultimately, we're both the oppressed in that we suffer injustice at the hands of other people and the oppressor and that we perpetuate evil in our lives. But the gospel is that God saves us from his wrath, <laughs> which is a, a wonderful thing um, in that we hide from the wrath of God in God himself in Christ. Mm. Um, yeah. And and that is our salvation. It's our only hope. All right. Well, that wraps up our discussion on Grapes of Wrath. Taylor, you want to drop a hint at our next book? Yeah. So, I mean, if there's any question about what classic literature is, we're going to the true classics and this next one, maybe like the classic, actually. I mean, I, I guess for us, the classics like ultimately would be the Bible. But in ter- technical terms, the the classic um, <laughs> is is from ancient Greek literature, uh, which is great. We're taking a hard turn here from a f- pretty modern, but uh, we're going to be going back to 
the Greek classics um, with the Odyssey by Homer in our next book. And that should be an adventure, completely different style, obviously. Um, And we hope you'll listen with us.